You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Therapeutic horticulture is a buzz term at the moment, and for good reason. It's the label we use to refer to the branch of horticulture that focuses on the physiological and psychological health benefits of gardening. Dr. Kate Neal is Vice President for Therapeutic Horticulture Australia, is a Childhood Studies and Disability Studies researcher within the Centre for Children and Young People at Southern Cross University, and a Research Fellow at the Centre for Urban Greenery and Ecology, Singapore National Parks Board. She's also a regular writer for this episode's sponsor, the Australian horticulture industry magazine, Hort Journal Australia. In this episode, Karen Smith, editor for the magazine, interviews Kate about the importance for people of all ages and abilities to have regular access to plants and green spaces, how we as horticulturists communicate through plants, how the garden is a context for children's learning, and why therapeutic horticulture is really just a new name for a very old concept. Welcome, Kate, and how are you today? Hi, Karen. Thank you so much for having me, and I'm great. I'm talking to you. You're one of my favourite people in the industry, so I'm stoked. Thanks. Oh, lucky me. That's very kind of you to say that. So I actually met Kate through the Australian Institute of Horticulture. Uh, President there, Michael Casey, is also involved with therapeutic therapeutic horticultures. We've got some great connections. And just before we went live, Kate and I were both talking about networking and how networking helps develop your career. Because, um, I mean, I started out in horticulture um, and I discovered therapeutic horticulture some time later, and that was purely through networking. How about you, Kate, your networking experience? And that's how I met you. Yeah, absolutely. And that's just, you know, the bonus in and of itself. But um, I totally agree. And people like Michael Casey, who work so doggedly in the industry to connect people, and I think have a real genuine passion to see uh, the industry of horticulture and also therapeutic horticulture move forward. And I think, especially in a what is quite a young industry or field, I suppose, um, which is therapeutic horticulture, we need to rely on each other and we need to work together as a team in order for our voice to be heard. And I think having some really important conversations around definitions or context or the benefits of therapeutic horticulture enable us to put out a common voice and a, a succinct and cohesive message so that we're kind of repeating the same things until people hear us. So they always say it takes a few times for people to say something for it to sink in. So I think if we're all Voices working together to raise an industry and what's important in that industry or in that field, then we all benefit. But certainly, I came into this with no horticultural background, really interested in what was the interpersonal connections that were happening between people. And I was working in the field of childhood studies at the time. And so being able to understand it from a different perspective only really could have happened when I was having those conversations with horticulturists. And and like at the same, having them with educators or with nurses or mental health specialists. So, gosh, yeah, networking is everything. And I, I think we're really blessed in Australia that we work together more than we work in competition with each other. That's exactly right. And, you know, I 
being the editor of the Hort Journal magazine, I do network in various different sectors. And it's interesting how often I come across people working in therapeutic horticulture. We used to uh, have a fellow from uh, Kevin Hines Grow in Victoria, Dr. Chris Reed, that wrote for some time on therapeutic horticulture and working with people with disabilities of various types and how beneficial it, it was for those people. So, Kate, what's been your experience in working? You know, have you worked much with people with disabilities? Yeah, I have. I just in, to take in it that back field. To, yeah, sorry, Karen, just to take it back just a sec. It's so funny that when I first started becoming aware of this thing called therapeutic horticulture, I, I sort of, I was doing it and didn't know that it had a name. And then what I get so much through my role at Therapeutic Horticulture Australia was the same. People would jump onto Facebook and say, oh my gosh, I've been doing this for 20 years, 10 years, six months, whatever it is. I didn't realize it had a name. And so I think for a lot of people who are working in this space, it's been really lovely for them to be able to realize that actually it has a name, it has a home, it has a group of professionals who are trying to lift it up and trying to raise its profile and and join together like that. So I still get phone calls. I had one last week with someone who said, you know, send something that you did. And I just realized that, oh my gosh, what, I, what I'm doing with people in the garden has a name. And that's really important. I agree with you 100%. It's, I don't think people are always aware but we've all experienced that going for a bushwalk or walking through a beautiful garden or just being out in nature has an automatic feel-good feeling. You know, you, you automatically feel good about it. So if you're able to incorporate that into your field of work, particularly in today's world where people do feel very anxious and overwhelmed by life generally because there's 24-7 news and information overload that sometimes just taking yourself out of the picture, get yourself off the screen, off your iPad, off your phone and get out in nature, you automatically feel feel good about that. So it's kind of common sense in a way for many of us that we think, oh, look, I just need a nature fix. What's it called? We, we suffer attention deficit disorder. Oh, sorry, not attention, just nature deficit disorder. I think there's a yeah. a book written by Richard Liu, is it, Last Child in the Woods? But, yeah, so mm-hmm. whether we realise it or not, we are actually experiencing therapeutic horticulture in, in its own way. And, do you know, it's been so fascinating for me, Karen, because what I've found is that for the last two years, all we've been writing about, well, not all that we've been writing about, but so much has been written about how we turned to nature in the face of the pandemic and how it, you know, became a safe place. Like literally it was okay to still go to parks, but you couldn't go to shopping centres or, you know, we were suddenly working from home. So we turned our attention to what, if any, backyard we had the privilege of having. For some, it was just making do and making a balcony much more beautiful. But we found that we were returning ourselves to nature. And it's been so interesting. I live in the northern rivers of New South Wales where in the last um, six or so weeks we've just been hit by an inundation of nature um, by way of these horrendous floods. And I found myself at one point thinking, gosh, you know, like 
I talk so much about the importance of a connection to nature, but I really feel like I have a little too much nature in my life at the moment. And I spent the weekend because it was our first sunny weekend that we had back in my garden. And I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about it because, you know, everything is overgrown. Everything felt out of control. There was real metaphors to like how life was going and how my garden was looking. But by the end of what ended up being like a nine-hour session of just pottering in my garden, I realized that, yeah, it's just about the reconnection to myself, the reconnection to like realizing how resilient we can be as people. It wasn't about kind of taking charge of nature or feeling like I needed to dominate it to get some power back, but it was about just sitting there and going, well, this is what I can control today. This is what I, the changes that I can make to make my space more beautiful or more kind of inhabitable for me. And it, and I just am suddenly much more fascinated having lived through these horrendous floods to think, gosh, how will people's relationship with nature change in the face of adversity from nature? And so, yeah, so I, I, my, I'm really interested in kind of collecting those stories from some people who have been more, much more severely impacted by the floods than I have. Yeah, well, I can I can feel another podcast coming on about that. I'd be interested, you know, <laughs> down the track to hear about your observations and and how you know people have been affected. It, it's interesting. We uh, had a, an event recently with the Australian Institute of Horticulture, and the theme was on Indigenous plants, and there were a few Indigenous people there speaking, particularly a couple of fellows from. A company called Wildflower, and as Roman, yes, love Roman. yes, yes, Roman and uh, and Matt and Clarence Slocky was also a speaker there too, and another lady named Jess who had been on MasterChef and she'd travelled around Australia, uh, wanting to find out more about Indigenous edible plants, and so it did make me think about how Indigenous people always talk about country and their connection to country. And I feel there's huge lessons for everyone to learn from from Indigenous people and uh, I just hope they have a louder voice going forward, moving forward. Absolutely. And I think the Australian Institute of Horticulture does a really great job of promoting, like they've done a really great job in the last few years of promoting um, Indigenous knowledge and Indigenous enterprise such as Romans, which I just think is fantastic and also obviously what everyone else is doing in that space too. And I think from a therapeutic horticulture perspective, we've got to be really careful in Australia. And I'm, I, I think I'm always trying to check myself on this and critically reflect, but promoting a field that is about being connected and having a sense of belonging through nature, where we as a nation have a history of removing that from so many people's lives and inflicting horrific gener- intergenerational trauma and so I think, you know, we do as a field need to be really careful in the way that we're promoting therapeutic horticulture in a way that not only acknowledges the fact that this knowledge is tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years old in the oldest living culture that we have, but that when we talk about reconnecting people through culture, we're acknowledging that trauma so that we can move past it as well. So. I think, you know, looking forward, I would hope that's something that we're able to very bravely have that conversation about how, how do we want to situate therapeutic horticulture in Australia in a way that recognises past traumas and also acknowledges that incredible ancient culture 
that knows so much about the importance of connection to country and and to green spaces. Definitely. Have you, um, can you think of any case studies in particular that you felt had a huge, that therapeutic horticulture had a huge impact on? Off the top of your head or am I putting uh, you on the spot there? No, no, I just kind of was like eeny, meeny, miny, moe, where do I go with this? I Look, the work that I've done with Michael Casey in the school in Victoria, I think opened both our eyes. That was a, a, a garden that Michael's worked in for five or six years before I came along and decided to wrap a narrative around what he was, you know, presenting as, as what his observations were. This is a garden that changes children's lives. It changes their trajectory in not only thinking, oh, I might study horticulture and therefore, you know, there's a, a future for me as a career, but really sort of seeing their value of what they are creating as young people. And I think we underestimate today's contributions of children. Um, we always think about them as becomings, but to actually sit back and say, no, these are horticultural students who are learning skills for tomorrow, but they're doing it in a way that is contributing today. That garden is the like the jewel of that school. The principal takes dignitaries around with such pride. It's feeding into so much of the curriculum in terms of business enterprise, in terms of the restaurant on site and the cafe. It's providing food through their local parish to um, the food insecure in their community. It's allowing these children to have intergenerational uh, conversations with their nonnas or other family members who culturally, you know, they're they're holding on to their culture and it provides a a common language for them to be able to do that. I think it's just, and I love talking about it, and you've given us through Hort Journal the opportunity to write about that school, but I just see huge impacts on these children who are really at a crossroad in their lives where you know the school wasn't necessarily going well for them it was suggested that they do horticulture because it's great to get a trade under their belt but they've moved in much more and when we spoke to those students which was a couple of years back now you know some of them were talking about how they were using it in other lessons that they were doing or their interest in horticulture was actually around developing apps that could help in growing things so they were seeing it much more than just you know going to the school garden they were saying wow how can I actually use this in my future and um yeah I think it's one of I think it's a really beautiful case study but certainly you know I've seen it in the disability sector as well um in the way that I worked in a garden down in Ballina and um we decided well I decided we're going to put the the veggie patch out the front because it had a beautiful backyard and we could have certainly popped a veggie patch there but I wanted to change the streetscape and I wanted the people who were living in this independent supported living accommodation. The old name used to be a group home, but they've certainly changed in away from that institutionalised model, thank God. But I thought if we put a veggie patch out the front, the residents will spend more time out the front. When they spend more time out the front, they're more likely to have interactions with their neighbours or passerbys. Those interactions with the neighbours and passerbys were so positive because it was all about, oh, gosh, garden's coming along well. And it provided, again, the garden always provides this common language or this common commonality between people where we actually have something to talk about. And some of the neighbours confessed, you know, they said, well, you know, we, we hear them inside every now and then or we see them coming in and out with support workers, but I've never really stopped and had much of a chat with these people. And that provided that opportunity for people with disability to feel the authentically included in their community because 
they were providing something as beautiful as a, a beautiful front garden for the neighbours and passerbys to see. So I think sometimes the most profound differences we can make through horticulture might seem quite obvious or they might seem sort of trivial or insignificant. But when you actually talk to the people whose lives they're changing, they talk about them in really profound ways. Yes. I think about today's society, particularly in urban areas. Like as a child, I remember lots of people used to sit on their front porch or their front veranda and talk to all the passers-by or you knew all your neighbours. But today's society, often the garage is at the front, it's got an automatic door opener, they drive in, it's got internal access, so they actually don't ever speak to their neighbours. You know, many people wouldn't even Mm. know their neighbour's first name, which is really uh, quite sad, you know, for for people who are, you know, out in the workforce and and they're busy and they're meeting, uh, talking with people every day is one thing, but a lot of people aren't in that situation. So if they can't talk to their neighbours, sometimes they don't have anybody to talk to. So I agree with you, like having having a garden at the front is so important. Yeah, and I think also, I mean, this isn't my domain and I would never, ever purport to be an expert in this area, but I think that for me is the really exciting part of therapeutic horticulture when we look at it for a lens of um, urban planning and master planning and thinking about it um, in, time, in, in terms of the way that we reimagine communal green spaces in buildings and so in sort of like a residential development but then also just the way that we want to reimagine streets and again like LinkedIn Mm. I love looking at LinkedIn because everyone seems to find all the clever articles that I then read but uh, but you know how we reimagine that streetscape do we want a road or do we want a shared front lawn which allows us all to get together under the canopy of trees and share meals and feel that sense of community and I think you know, we have been through extraordinary, the last couple of years have been quite extraordinary. And I think that that's one of the things that has forced us to to question, you know, how do we spend our time at home? What do we want our homes to actually look like and function? And also when we were separated from people physically, how important suddenly the neighbours meant. And then you saw that with like Facebook groups popping up everywhere where it was sort of like, does anyone know any elderly or isolated people who need something? And and we made those connections. So I think, you know, just to kind of say a terrible metaphor about it being like a really fruitful opportunity for us to uh, to to reimagine in those sort of fields how we want our gardens to look and feel and how we w- are willing to share public spaces I yeah. think is really important. You're probably aware that the uh, Singapore Garden Festival is, is about to go ahead this year and I had the good fortune of catching up with you and Michael at the last one a couple of years ago, but um, I can remember being in Singapore and going to a community garden there, which was built around a high-rise apartment and uh, how that connection brought people together. And it took me back to quite a few years ago now I was doing some judging of council. People could submit their garden, you know, to win an award in the local council. And uh, so this particular council I, I visited had a community garden just like the one in, in Singapore. And But the difference was in Singapore, they pretty much all speak the same language. But it, in this garden in Sydney, there was, because we are so much more multi, multicultural, quite a lot of the people that came down to the garden each day from, uh, it was a, a very high rise block of apartments, the connection 
even though they didn't speak the language, the connection through the gardening was so valuable to them. And everybody would turn up, you know, different seeds, growing different things because, you know, in different cultures we eat different things. So aside from, you know, that personal connection, you're also learning about other plants or foods to grow. And so I'm, I agree with you that that communal garden, whether it be, you know, if you're in a street where they're all houses and you connect through your front gardens, but if you are in high rise, I, I think councils really need to be sure that they they do have, people do have access to community gardens. I know there's two in my council, two community gardens, and it's a very similar case to that, that garden that I judged in that they're not always, uh, communicating in their own language or in English. It's often, you know, it's amazing how much we can communicate without even understanding what we what we're saying so we're communicating through plants and I think you know anyone who's a professional in this field all horticulturists would say and I'm not a horticulturist but I would say like we communicate through plants and I love those stories where you hear and and I and I have soaked them up through listening to people like Phil Pettit and Jenny Beer who talk about the fact that they're bringing people who have got really sometimes complex trauma-based but like lives and they're living in social housing and they're living with people um, with different languages and different cultures and different ideas and either the garden becomes a celebration of diversity so as you say bringing different seeds and and talking about the different ways that we grow or eat different foods but also I think within that going wow there's so much commonality that most most cultures I think all cultures kind of have a strong link to food and and through that link to food is a, is a link to growing and getting back to basics and actually kind of celebrating a simple herb which one culture might use the leaves of where the others you know focus on the roots of or the fruit that comes from or the flowers or whatever it is and then let alone the different ways that they'll eat it fresh or that they'll cook it or they use it for medicinal purposes so i just think that Community gardens are an incredible kind of melting pot for really understanding the cultures around us. And I was in Taree yesterday in a community garden and our program starts at 9.30 and at about 8.30, a gentleman walked past and noticed a couple of the beds were empty and, and I, he got chatting to me and he said, would it be okay to come and grow some food? And I said, oh, yeah, you know, just maybe chat to the coordinator in case there's a purpose for these beds. I don't know. I'm just here on a Tuesday. And he said, because, you know, it's fresh food's getting so expensive. I, I worry about how I'm going to have access to it. So it'd be great to um, to buy some seeds and start growing. And I thought, God, that yes. is really how we need to be viewing community gardens in the future as well, that we have a place for people who, and I don't know his personal circumstances, but people who are really at risk of food insecurity to have a safe place to grow food to ensure that continuity with you know, food, let alone the, and their culture, let alone then that the nutritional value and importance of that as well. For sure, because it's all we're hearing about on the news is how, you know, the cost of living is going up. So it's a really good reason for people to start growing and, and then they, they do get that benefit of interaction and particularly for older people because they're, they're retired and, and, you know, perhaps some of their friends have passed away. So if they don't have that connection to community, um, it can be very, very lonely for them. And that 
only in terms of the social connections and being able to maintain an identity in your community, but I think from in terms of social visibility as well. Um, and I talk about this a lot, again, in the disability space, but I think also in ageing populations as well, that we're a, that being in a communal place and to grow enables you to be socially visible, that you are a part of this community, that you do live here, and then kind of piques people's to remember to look out for certain segments of the community that are there. But what I love when I always talk to someone who's got 40 years growing experience is they're just a wealth of information and they get a kick out of being able to share that information with the younger generation. So I think where we can use community spaces or school gardens to have an intergenerational connection between people who have you know grown and just have so much incredible knowledge and such a beautiful way of teaching that knowledge to somebody else. It doesn't need to be, you know, the three to five-year-old. It can really just be anyone who's interested in listening. The benefits are vast and therefore everybody, like everyone benefits when that conversation occurs, I think. I read a post on social media the other day that said, when an elderly person passes away, we lose a library. And I thought, it's so true, the knowledge that we that is lost then I mean you, you might have even noticed it like I noticed in my own family history you think oh if only I'd have asked my mother this or if only I'd asked my grandparents grandfather this particular question that information is gone and interestingly last week when I was down at the Melbourne Flower Show I was on the Australian Garden Council I was looking at the Australian Garden Council stand and um Daniel Fuller from Plants Grow Here was there and members of the Australian Institute of Horticulture were there working on the stand. And while I was there, a group of school kids came in and I think it was Lauren Danachek said, so who likes gardening? Who works in the garden? And they were all shooting up their hands and I heard quite a few of them say, oh, yes, Nana showed me how to do that or Grandpa shows me how to do this, you know. And I thought there is so much value in that intergenerational teaching and well not just about the gardening but patience and nurturing all of those uh, skills that go along with with working in the garden so that was that was really lovely to hear that and I think anyone that's heard me speak on the topic before will know this story but working in the preschool setting I often it's not I have to talk to the educators about really like our presumption of knowledge that children have and you know, you just need to talk to kids about their experiences gardening and you'll realise that there'll be a three or four-year-old in that group who will, you know, everything there is to be said about uh, strawberry patches because grandma's got one. And so, you know, we I think we, we tend to look at children and think that they need to be taught something. But if we stop and actually ask them what we or, what they already know, usually it's something of value that we can add to the garden. So we kind of build on their skills and then they get a, a big boost of um, of pride from us doing that. But when you ask where they know that knowledge from, it's often that, you know, Nana taught me or that we've got a garden in our backyard or I spend time in the garden with dad or mum, you know, that we've got a yeah. farm and things like that. So again, and, and again, when we take that full circle back to the conversation we were just having about Indigenous knowledge, this is how knowledge has been passed down for yes. like thousands and thousands of years. It's through storytelling. It's through showing, through doing. It's through sitting in a gar in a green space, sitting in nature, and passing down the knowledge we have. And that's why I'm saying, like, 
I often feel really conflicted to think that I'm a you know a non-indigenous woman sitting in this kind of academic field pretending this is new knowledge it's not and and again that's why I just think we need to be so mindful and tread so carefully when we're we're talking about this knowledge that it's been known by the oldest living culture that we have on earth sure I've read Dark Emu <laughs> have you read that book yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I have Yes, interestingly, and, and I can see now also that preschools are starting to uh, grow herbs and, and some vegetables as well. And, oh, I don't know, three or four years ago for Christmas, I bought all of my nieces and nephews' children a, a little mini greenhouse for Christmas with some seeds and an invitation to Auntie Karen's Garden Day. And so on the day, I took along a whole heap of herbs because I thought they can smell them and taste them and feel them. And the three and a half year old knew most of the herbs. And I said, Oh, do you grow these at home? And she said, No, I'm in the garden club at preschool. And that was really lovely to, to hear that because so many young people, or, you know, I'm probably generalizing a bit here, but it's very easy to think it just comes from the supermarket. For a child, you know, to not actually know how it grows and, and that you can, you know, learn about what you can eat and what you can't eat. So, yeah, it's very, very interesting. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, schools have done a great job by and large in terms of integrating growing and gardening and we know there's kitchen clubs and gardening clubs at school and I think it's when we have educators who understand that a garden can be an integrated learning environment, that you're not just necessarily teaching them about plants, but it can be a, a science lesson or an art class or, you know, it can be about music or it can be, you know, an environmental, you know, understanding our climate and biodiversity. And I think the more that educators get behind the idea that a garden is a context for learning and you need not only learn about gardens in that space, that children become much more comfortable in that space and they, they, they're able to learn about gardening or plants or different parts of horticulture through their time spent in the garden. So I think, you know, we're certainly talking a lot about student wellbeing at the moment through the pandemic and in northern New South Wales, obviously now through floods. And I think the more that we can embed children's learning through environments like gardens the more they learn not just on the subject topic but when they're just you know integrated and and sitting in that space they come to really appreciate nature and I think that's why we we do hear conversations where kids do know a fair bit which is great and I think we need to celebrate that more and more but I bet you know when I'm when you were saying that you were offering to buy with that you bought your nieces and nephews those greenhouses what you really bought them was time with you and I think kids really crave that. They crave that connection to an adult that they love and that they care about. And often just pottering in the garden together has very little to do with what you planted or what you were talking about in terms of the garden. But what the kid gets out of it is I have their attention, I have their time, you know, and we can share stories. Something funny might happen and we'll retell it later at the dinner table. But that's what kids crave. They really crave that connection with adults. And and I think that we shouldn't, you know, when, when I talk to parents or write articles about how you do gardening with kids, I, I say don't focus on the what you're doing, but just focus on the time you're spending together and the language that you're using and kind of being supportive and, and valuing their contribution and their ideas, because that's what 
build strong strong children. That's what the what helps with their well being and fosters a sense of value in them. Oh, for sure. And and like that was over the Christmas holiday. So I'm sure all the parents, you know, were grateful for Auntie Karen taking the kids for the day and uh, running that little workshop. But when they all went back to school, a couple of them messaged me to say, I've just joined the garden club at school, you know, once they got back to school. Mm-hmm. So that was interesting. And, and, and one of the, because these are my great nieces and nephews, and one of them one year I bought carnivorous plants for Christmas. And, um, and his mother said to me, I reckon that was the best present that he got. He's so fascinated because it was, it was a uh, Venus flytrap. And the cultivar or the, you know, its generic name was fang. So, like, you know, it's got fangs and it eats the insects. Yeah, yeah. But he nurtured that plant as far as I'm aware. He, you know, he had it for about a year and a half, but something happened eventually, you know, got the better of him. But every day he would be up and going out and having a look at it to see, you know, if it's caught insects and, and, and was the nurturing experience from it was invaluable. His mother, so his mother said to me, you know. And again, this is where, like, I, I wish I was a horticulturist, but I'm so glad I have so many as friends. You keep saying that you're not, but you really are. I, okay, thank you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, you're right. But my limited plant knowledge of plants, I think, because I think we also need to not be afraid to move past this idea of a kitchen garden as well with kids, and we should yes. just be thinking about what interests them and what plants can you know fulfill that so I absolutely love that story that you mentioned about the carnivorous plants because I'm like well yes of course that would be you know way much more exciting than growing necessarily tomatoes or peas but I was talking to someone in a youth garden a a little while ago and he was saying his mum was an avid gardener and she was always trying to get him into the garden as a kid but he never really showed much interest and as he got to kind of a troublesome teen age his mum who was incredibly knowledgeable and obviously has a great sense of humor she grew him a she put together with him a death garden and it was all poisonous things and carnivorous plants and and things that you know had all these kind of magical things just because she just thought well that will pique his interest and he did he just kind of found the funny side in mum kind of finding all these kind of rebellious plants to grow that had these kind of morbid purposes but it that was what got him into gardening and so you know there were obviously rules around the uses and you know staying safe and things like that but he was saying that's how mum connected with me as a teenager and we enjoyed our time in the garden growing these sort of you know like rebellious plants I suppose totally I love it I thought it was great yeah which which brings us back to the storytelling with the Indigenous community and passing on that knowledge. Because I remember some years ago, I was installing some plants into a preschool. And so they've given me a big long list of plants that I could and couldn't use. And, and so one of, one of the plants they did want was lavender because, you know, of the sensory benefits. But the day that I was actually planting out, one of the mothers came up and said, my child's allergic to, to bees and, you know, lavender brings bees. And I went, oh my God, <laughs> you know. Lots of we want mm. pollinators, but how do we learn? How if we if we never expose our children to plants that have got poisonous berries? How do they learn not to put them in their mouth? You know how do how do they learn what's going to affect their skin? And just as that knowledge had been handed down to 
generations for tens of thousands of years with the Indigenous community, we've become these tiger parents that don't want to expose our children to anything. And, you know, where's the learning in that? So it's like don't let them climb a tree just in case they might fall out. Oh, and we know this all the time in, in nature play gardens where, you know, we've gone just so far from nature in creating these so-called safe play equipments for kids that are all, you know, with the rubber matting underneath and the yeah. particular like safety things. But what, what we're actually teaching kids is every time you jump, you'll be safe. And that's just actually not true yeah. because they're not always going to be on those play equipments. And so what we need to teach children is to understand risk and to understand consequences. And we as adults have a role in standing beside those children in those instances and helping them negotiate the risk and consequences of their actions. So, you know, I 100% agree. And I am often given lists when I work with preschools as well about, or even when I want to do research and I have to do risk analysis of what it's like to be in the garden. And I'm like, you know what? It's it, it could be a death trap. It could be, but it's our job to slow down and think about the risk and make safe decisions together that the children or whoever I'm working with can then at some stage be safe in the garden on their own as well. And I think, you know, that's it's just an issue we have in broader life, I think, in the way that we treat children, as you say, the sort of helicopter parenting that yeah I think we we slowly need to undo and I think we are making small steps to undoing it we're seeing the school gardens go back to including mud kitchens and nature play and loose materials and allowing kids to climb trees I remember I remember hearing about an apple tree that was growing in a school and the children weren't allowed to eat the apples because the educators weren't sure about whether they were safe to eat and I thought oh my gosh, how do we ever let an apple into a lunchbox then? Because certainly the ones we buy from the supermarket, there's no guarantees of what's been put yeah. on that apple in order for the child to eat it. So, yeah. you know, I think we, we do kind of, we are at risk of going mad when it comes to stuff like that. And I think it's, again, therapeutic horticulture is a really great space to talk about the risk and the rewards of risky play for kids in gardens. Oh, for sure. You know, it's um, we need to educate the educators. Now, you did an article for us, I think it was last year, all about including children in the design aspect of a plan for a garden. I'm not sure, I can't quite recall if the garden was actually in the school, but they were involved in that process of the design. And surely that is a good time. Like, so if, you know, during that process of, you know, them all designing or talking about what they'd like to see in the garden, that that discussion can take place that well, okay, if you're growing native citrus, they're very thorny, so don't go poking your fingers in without your gloves on and this type of thing. Or if you're, you know, you've got plants that might attract bees, be aware that, you know, you don't go sticking your nose in the flowers first without checking there's nothing in there. So surely that 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 kind of information by being having the children involved in that design process is a is a valuable thing to do. And uh so perhaps if schools are thinking about designing a garden within their school, get the kids involved. Absolutely. I mean, the garden is for children, right? So why would we exclude them from a conversation about what that garden would look like and what its function would be? I mean, it, it, to me, it makes no sense to design something for anybody without thinking about their lived experience and, and how they would like to use that space. And 
I think the reason why we tend to keep kids out of that conversation seems to be, oh, they'll say something ludicrous or they'll want a giant water slide or they'll want all of these things. And and that article, which I co-wrote with Michael Casey, I remember we discussed, you know, how do we get around that? And Michael's had some great experience co-designing in that school in Melbourne with students. But it's really about having a conversation and delving deeper. Oh, what do you want about, you know, not the water slide came up in his ideas, but with the school, but go, what is it about X that you want? Oh, well, I want somewhere to play. Oh, okay. And then you you come up with, and it's about negotiation. And, and again, we're teaching kids a really important skill to go, well, what is it about this that you really want? Well, actually, it's not the water slide. It's just that I want somewhere that I can move my body. Oh, what's other ways we could move our body that you know, could be doable in the space that we've got? And then you're digging a little bit deeper and having that conversation. And so when you pop something in the playground, and we see this all the time, especially in kitchen gardens where they go, well, we built it and the kids hardly ever use it. It's like, well, it's your garden. Why should they use it? Whereas mm. if you've got them involved in the ground up, You've let them, you know, you, we do this as parents all the time. We give children choices. So we could have this or this and you let them choose. Then by the time they're stepping their feet in the garden as a user, they've got a vested interest in all of it. And they've got a deep understanding of why those features are here and the ways that we've envisaged that children might want to use that space. And, and also we're kind of saying you're important. Your voice is important. Your ideas are important. And also as adults, uh, we're saying we followed through. Here it is. Here are your ideas that have come to fruition. Because kids always say that, you know, adults say they'll do something and they don't necessarily do it. And, 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 you know, they don't say that adults are liars, but they, they, they often come up with reasons or justifications why the adults haven't done what they said that they would do. So I always think it's really important in any of our interactions with kids. Um, to build trust by actually following through and saying, I listened, I heard you, we came up with this and here it is. Yes, and it gives them great life skills and plus a sense of pride and ownership. So it's more likely that they, they'll be inclined to help with maintaining that garden and making improvements and the, you know, the continuous growth of new, new things. It, it, all of those things that it, it gives back to them. So, I mean, I've probably designed a thousand gardens over the years and they say, oh, you know, I want low maintenance. I don't, you know, I don't want to have to do anything. So just give me hedges and lawn. And I go, you know, you could have a garden that wouldn't require anywhere near as much maintenance as hedges and lawn. But I, one of the things that I think that they miss is it, the value that you get out of actually immersing yourself in the garden and, and, and doing that maintenance yourself. It's a lot cheaper than a gym membership and it keeps you just, just as fit. So, you know, it's a bit sad that people have overlooked that aspect of it, the therapy. I totally agree. And I think also it's about, yeah, understanding the purpose of the garden. And there's some beautiful landscape designers and landscape architects who create incredible spaces for people to utilise. And, again, I think it's co-design. You, you work out what does someone actually want to do in that space and how do you create a space that kind of caters for that? But I totally agree with you. It's like when things are going wrong in my garden or when my garden needs attention like it has after six weeks of constant rain on the weekend, it felt overwhelming. It would have been way easier if all I had to do was pull out the lawnmower and give it a mow. But I felt 
a completely different person by the end of that day of being in the garden. My head was clear. I literally felt grounded. We always talk about that as a bit of a cliche and a metaphor. But I just was in my own head. I'd worked out my week. I'd had little conversations with myself. I'd talked to my chickens, which everyone knows I love to do. But I came home, I came back upstairs a completely different person than I walked out there. And I don't think I would have got that if it was just as easy as calling the guy to come and mow the lawns or mowing them myself or, and not sort of thinking about how I wanted my space to look. And, and one of the things I've only really just worked out in the last year or so as a gardener at home is that you can just move plants around, you know, mostly and, and kind of keep it changing as a landscape. And you find a plant in the garden store that you like and you just buy it and put it in. And if it doesn't work, maybe you can move it or maybe you have to get rid of it. But there's something that it does not need to look like a final masterpiece from the get-go and nothing's permanent, nothing's sort of set in stone, really. You've got this beautiful canvas to continue to play with. And I think the more we can get that across to people that a garden needs to think of a garden as a work in progress and as something that's always an expression of where you are and, and what you're interested in, then suddenly they become much more interesting places to sit. And and often, you know, I, again, I love the idea that we used to propagate from each other's gardens. And when I remember my grandma, you know, a tour around her garden was always where she got cuttings from all these people and other neighbours and on holidays somewhere and from someone else's, you know, prize-winning rosebush or whatever it was. But her garden had a story. And as she got older and as those people kind of left her life, obviously, you know, as they kind of reached the end of their lives, it just became a beautiful living garden of friendship yeah. as well. And I just remember thinking, gosh, you know, that was Mrs. Perrins. And I remember, you know, that that was Arnie Dots and all of these things. They were their gardens. And, and I regret deeply. You talked about that before, about those stories we lose. I regret not being into gardening when my nan was alive because I wish I had those cuttings and I was continuing that through to a next generation. Yeah. My father always said he had a little bit of everybody in his garden. <laughs> I think he might have been a bit of light-fingered when he was walking around the neighbourhood, but he certainly anything he took cutting from my garden, he, he'd end up growing it bigger and better than what I did. So that was good. Well, yeah, I love that. Now, the therapeutic... Horticulture Australia has their annual conference on this this year, or is it biannual? No, no, this year. This We're year. We're so excited. Yeah, so people can go onto the website, tha.org.au, and look up the Therapeutic Landscape Conference. The date's not up there yet, but I believe it's kind of the end of September, early October, around that time. Well, I'm not on the organising committee for the conference this year, but I do have a bit of gossip that it will certainly be at the start of October that we're going in person again. We had a really wildly successful online conference last year, but this year, you know, we we hold the best cocktails party that anyone I think in the industry knows about. So we're and we love catching up with each other. So the rumour is that it will, in fact, COVID pending, of course, or any other kind of massive life event, um, be meeting in Melbourne this year in early October. And it's going to be a hybrid conference so that if you can only make it online, and obviously we're, I think we're trying to attract a, a larger international audience as well, that there will be some things presented online for those who can't make it to Melbourne but otherwise yeah it's going to be in Melbourne and I believe a call for papers if you're working in that space or 
uh, and want to share your work is coming out in the in the coming weeks. That's fantastic. Well, I think on that note, Kate, we might finish up. But is there a message? It doesn't have to be uh, horticultural related. Is there a message that you'd just like to, uh, listeners to hear? If we're all plant people that's listening, I guess it's just continue to do the networking and share your stories. I learn so much from people who, you know, often say, oh, I don't know that this is relevant, but, and then they go on to tell me the most incredible story that's therapeutic horticulture related. So go to events, support organizations like THA and um, AIH and and read magazines like yours because you learn so much and and sometimes you don't even know what you're looking for and yet someone will share a story or you'll network at an event and, and it will lead off into something that we um that is totally unexpected. And I think, you know, keeping an open mind about the future of horticulture in Australia makes it a super exciting place to be. So I think that's probably my message to the plant people that are listening. I hope that resonates in some way or what we've talked about today resonates and you have a bit of an aha moment or, oh, that's me moment. That would be pretty great. That, that's fantastic. Well, thanks very much for your time today, Kate. Thanks, Karen. I love chatting to you. Check the show notes to read a few articles that Kate's written for Hort Journal Australia online. I encourage anybody working within our industry to subscribe to the journal. It's part of your professional development to read this sort of content, otherwise you'll turn around one day and realise you've lost touch with the latest information and the way the industry is moving. And besides, it's only 99 bucks a year to receive printed issues monthly. I work in advertising at the magazine, so if you've got a product that our industry needs to know about, check the show notes to get in touch with me so I can help you grow your business through print and podcast marketing.